When we play computer games, especially role-play fantasy games, it's no surprise that we don't do our day job. No one really wants to play a night elf project manager in World of Warcraft or a Nord Uber contract driver in Skyrim. We want to immerse ourselves in the fantasy world of the game in a different world of work and economy, a world of crafts and artisans and guilds. Was this world ever really there in real history? And what does this fantasy world, this computer game fantasy world of work, tell us of our collective memory of work and collective organisation? They are the questions for today's Burning Archive. Welcome to the Burning Archive. My name is Jeff Rich. I am a writer, historian, poet, podcaster, and very minor government official. And this is the Burning Archive podcast, where we talk about all things history and culture, and where the past is not dead, it is not even past, and whereby thinking about the past... We try to live better in the present. Today, we're continuing the series of programs prompted by a set of questions asked of me by Isaac Rich in episode 32. This archive is for the players, all themed around the question of how do computer games represent history or are a source of knowledge about history or or what sort of perspective on history Uh, or curiosity about history is generated by computer games. And today's question was actually also a listener question from Sam. So thanks very much, Sam, for passing on your question to Isaac back in episode 32. And the question was about how work or professions and trades are presented in games, particularly, say, like a game like World of Warcraft, where it's always craft professions and there are also guilds. There are sort of questions about how those guilds, what were they and how did they sort of relate to the real real historical economy. So why don't we just listen to how Isaac, on behalf of Sam, put the question back in episode 32. And um, But before we do that, Do remember, if you're a fan of the show, to leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes and share the show where you can on uh, social media and subscribe to the show so that more people out there in the world can get the goodness of the Burning Archive. Okay, so let's listen to what questions Isaac had of the Burning Archive about professions in computer games. And the question actually is a listener question. Okay. Uh, it is not a listener question, which has, there's no voice to this. I'm reading this on behalf of a listener and a friend of the show, Sam, who has sent in a question, basically asking about the idea of professions in, in the Middle Ages or, or I guess, yeah, medieval sort of times or, or, or historically. So... Uh, yeah. yeah, what what were professions? Things like blacksmiths, merchants, all that sort of thing. And I guess extending that, is that linked to the idea of guilds and mercantilism? Mm. Um, they're things that I guess I've looked at a little bit here and there in my 
uni studies uh, and that sort of get thrown around. Um, I know in some economic theory and that sort of thing, something that I was looking at last year was the idea of Adam Smith, who's a kind of, I guess, controversial figure in economics, but um, a lot of his theories were came out of being anti-mercantilist or anti kind of guilds i think yep. was was the gist of that yep, yep. um so yeah what were those things were that all linked um and maybe how are those traditions how have they transformed into what we have now in modern society or or have they been forgotten um yep. yeah uh i think yeah that would be really interesting and i guess sort of from what you said i think this has sort of been a bit similar with some of the other questions as well but the idea that like i think my image of merchants or blacksmiths or, or, or you mm. know those idea of guilds it's also quite it's quite like europe focused yeah. um so again you know one you could maybe take in a few different directions but yeah uh whether yeah you touch on kind of the idea of like were there similar were there similar dynamics where you had these trades yeah. emerge in, in yeah. other regions um oh, absolutely and were they similarly kind of represented by things like guilds or was it structured in a much different way within society yeah um yep. yeah yep. so again this is a great question from uh sam and from isaac and i guess the just summarizing the sort of themes of the question it's sort of what what was the sort of idea of professions or or the 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 real nature of professions or crafts trade skills or the nature of work even in medieval or pre-modern historic times uh, how does that link to guilds and to mercantilism well, i guess what was it about guilds and mercantilism that adam smith uh, and i guess free market economic thinking didn't like and I guess how modern times, sometime from say 1800 or 1750, distinguished itself from this sort of world of work or this type of economy. And how have those traditions, because we still have professions and crafts and maybe not so much guilds, but we certainly have unions and employer organisations, how have those traditions changed into what we have now? And also how is what we see in computer games just uh, a European-centric sort of uh, view or an American-centric view of of history or is it uh, how did that experience differ across regions across the world and i guess in summary i guess what i'd say here is again games are sort of as we're sort of discovering through this little series built on the questions asked by isaac rich in episode 32 this archive is for the players Games are kind of an archive or a lens into uh, the history of various things. It's a, it's a, they can be a repository for the symbols and the stories and the cultural images of many things. And that includes the history of work and guilds and, in a way, economies. You get to play the auction house in World of Warcraft. You get to play being a blacksmith or a tailor or, or any of those sorts of things. And you join a guild and collaborate with your uh, fellow guildies. But to really make sense of the story presented about uh, the history of work, guilds and economies uh, in computer games, I think you really need to understand the big global transformations that occurred in the, particularly in the 19th 
century, which I guess broadly you can partly connect to the Industrial Revolution, but they're a bit broader than that as well. It's the transformations of labour or work and the beginning of both an industrial society, but also the response to an industrial society which sees the nostalgia for the pre-modern world. The 19th century was to some degree the high point of the development of the sort of romance of medieval history. And uh, luckily enough, also, as it happens, I actually wrote my PhD way back in the early 1990s and and late 1980s on the history of work and craft unions in the 19th century. So hopefully I'll be able to contribute a little bit of uh, real expertise into this discussion and make it both meaningful and erudite and a little bit entertaining. So uh, today what I'm going to discuss is really uh, five key sections. So there's the sort of the presentation of work, professions and guilds in computer games, fantasy roleplay games particularly. Uh, then the sort of uh, nature or idea of uh, work, trades and professions in the pre-modern world which we can roughly say, let's say, somewhere about 1750 can be our dividing line. You know, some people might put it earlier. Roughly have that in mind as our dividing line. The idea of work, trade, professions in the pre-modern world versus the modern world. And then the idea of guilds, unions, even class identities in the pre-modern versus the modern world. And then, if you like, the trauma of industrialization in collective memory and how that has fed into the importance of presenting this sort of pre-modern world in computer games. And then finally, a few comments about how we're seeing the uh, idea of work and profession, craft, if you like, transformed again today in even Uh, I guess, unions and collective uh, work organisation in our regular jobs today. So first of all, how are professions, trade skills, work and guilds presented in the world of computer games, particularly thinking, I guess, of the game like World of Warcraft or Skyrim, a sort of a role play fantasy sort of genre game. Now, these games present the world of work largely as a world of craft and artisans and guilds. Every player has a trade skill and they make their own stuff and then sell it to make their living. They do not have to worry too much about colleagues. They do not have to worry too much about bosses. They are their own boss in a world of a skilled, uh, distinct, knowable craft. Their artisans, there's a sort of a pride in their unique skill and craft. And although the guilds, I guess, in in these games generally are not work-based, they, they're often based around a class in the game, um, like assassins or something like that, or have at least some sort of uh, common professional identity. So in that sense, they, they present a, a collective work identity. 
And as I said, I think in my immediate response back in episode 32 on this archive for the player, the nature of the work and professions presented in these games are your classic hand skill, handcrafts. They're tailors, they're alchemists, they're all chemists, let's say, mixers of potions. Um, they are uh, blacksmiths. Herbalists, skinners, miners, leather workers, engineers, in the sense of tinkerers rather than operators of big, large machinery. So it's very much a pre-modern world, a world where factories don't exist, or that at least are not put centre stage. It's a world where, you know, work is conducted in small individually based workshops, often, you know, home-based workshops in, in some sort of shed at the back of a back of an inn. It's also a world where, you know, there aren't big boxed retailers like Bunnings who who um, sell the goods of craftspeople. The craftspeople put the um, their their handiwork on the auction house themselves. However, there's also, that's the foregrounded world of work, I guess that's presented, uh, this sort of pre-modern world of work. But then there's also a sort of a background menace in, certainly in World of Warcraft, probably not so much in a game like Skyrim, but certainly in the world of World of Warcraft, there is this kind of background menace of machines and money. You have uh, your sort of goblins and mad tinkerers who bring these weird machines that destroy the forests and uh, clear clear the forests and uh, leave devastation in their wake, who, who in their pursuit of money and profit and technology are threatening the green world of Azeroth and the green world of craft. So in that sense, it is almost like they're presenting the world of 1800 sitting on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution where small independent craftspeople and farmers are being threatened by a new world of machines and commerce and big cities and technological destruction. And this world is anchored in a historical reality. I mean, some of the professions uh, there uh, were real professions, like blacksmiths. One of the, I guess, curious little delights of studying the history of work in, say, the 19th century is you go through the census, and the census has its old 19th century version of the classification of work, you know, professional, managerial, uh, you know, unskilled, skilled, whatever. And it has this huge range of trade skill names like blacksmith, like cooper, like slater, like plasterer, beer maker, brewer, hundreds and hundreds of these uh, very particular little artisanal skills, many of which we're sort of bringing back now as sort of boutique sort of market skills but existed long long before that and have often quite interesting cultural histories 
So, for example, blacksmiths, uh, whose, uh, I guess, role was crucial, particularly in an era where a horse was more useful than uh, what was your main form of transport sort of thing before the steam engine and cars and all that sort of stuff, and were crucial to to you know creating armor or swords weapons all that sort of thing blacksmith's role was transformed to some degree by the 19th century and the growth of industry but as the historian jürgen osterhammel says in many cultures the blacksmith enjoyed high esteem or even mythical status as master of fire physical strongman tool maker and weapons producer Although in India, it was seen as lower caste caste work. In large areas of sub-Saharan Africa, it was not a craft with an ancient history, but only began in the 18th century and reached its peak between 1820 and 1920. Smithies produced things that were both useful and beautiful. Jewellery, for example, coinage... And they were largely in control of their own production process. He notes, however, that the conventional image of the village blacksmith is rather misleading, since he might well have worked also to satisfy demand outside his local area. In the Congo, for example, many had a far-flung clientele that was both ethnically and socially diverse. The need to acquire raw materials tied them into wider trading circles and encouraged them to cultivate numerous social contacts. So even just in that little brief excerpt from a book which I'll talk more about in a moment uh, by Jürgen Osterhammel, you see both the cultural richness of ideas of professions and also the greater social complexity than perhaps one imagines in like a tradie like a blacksmith is is producing for a range of customers, a range of clientele, a range of goods, and participating in both, I guess, mechanical manufacturing processes, um, supporting a local community, but then also a wider clientele uh, in a broader area. And similarly, the, the social role of such a trade or profession differed in different regions of the world. But nonetheless, the kind of craft pre-modern work world of presented in computer games is anchored in a historical reality. There really were those kind of artisans, those kind of trades. And similarly, there were guilds which performed important social functions, such as, for example, some of the late medieval Renaissance Italian guilds, uh, which were both market regulators i guess they they said who could or couldn't work in the profession in the town they performed uh, social support functions for people but they uh, within the town so you know like once uh, a member of the guild got injured perhaps too much to support the trade there might be benefits provided to them but at times they also performed a role as quality uh, checkers, I guess, like uh, in that sense, market regulators, like there's a certain standard of work that we expect of a blacksmith or a, of a weaver 
or of a, of a, a banker that, that is required for guild membership. But this anchored historical reality presented in computer games is a distorted reality. It's very much the urban world of pre-modern or perhaps late medieval Europe. And uh, that urban world was a, a thin sliver, I guess, of the whole world of work in that era. Most work in, you know, until really 1900 was peasant agricultural based. But many people who were peasant farmers, agricultural workers, also performed multiple other roles. They might come into the city to do construction work or come into the city to do a little bit of some other kind of trade depending on the season of the year. And although, of course, the experience of work is hard to recreate because, well, it's it's not very well documented. It relies on often the accounts of more literary types who may not really understand what's going on in the workplace. Nonetheless, there is a sense in which as, there's, you know, aspects of games present that artisanal independence but they also very much present a distorted reality so what can we say more broadly about what pre-modern work trades professions were really like and sort of how does it differ to what we what we have today and and here i guess it's important to think very specifically about the very crucial transformation that occurs in the 19th century the sort of transition from if you like, craft to industry, from traditional to modern societies or pre-modern to traditional societies, the vast expansion of European empires across the world and the, the extraordinary growth in technological domination of work processes that really began through the Industrial Revolution. And this transformation is at the root i think of why fantasy games do imagine or or the imaginary repertoire of fantasy games is this sort of pre-modern non-industrialized work because it's like the um the golden age before the the horrors of modern machinery and industrialism and technology and anonymous offices this transformation was one of the profound shaping movements in history and it very much permeates our cultural ideas so much of modern social thought is actually driven partly by trying to make sense of how the world was changed in the 19th century through the industrial revolution and all these other sort of things and a sort of a modern world was born even if we might put that word modern in quotation marks today a huge transformation occurred in the world including in the world of work or labor and there is a very very fine book by Jürgen Osterhamel uh, called The Transformation of the World A Global History of the 19th Century and this book looks at all sorts of big shifts that occur in the 19th century like things like concepts of memory and self how time was perceived differently in the 
in the 19th century? I mean, remembering that there was no no standard, like what we take for granted now of, um, you know, like standard time zones across the world, uh, standard calendars even uh, across the world didn't exist in the 19th century. That that sort of process really occurred towards the end of the 19th century, early 20th century even. Concepts of time, how people moved around the world, uh, living standards, cities, uh, the frontiers, empires, um, and also transformations in the nature of work or labour, life expectancy also, huge migration, different patterns of consumption, the emergence of very, very busy international ports all around the world, even changes in the movement of animals, plants, the biosphere, the the ability to move refrigerated meat or other goods around the world all this occurs in the 19th century so it it totally transforms the experience of life (laughs) Um, it's in a very very profound way through the 19th century so it's a very critical critical decade partly rooted in the industrial revolution or industrialism partly rooted in if you like, capitalism and growth of empires, but actually deeper, broader, more profound in a way than that. And and Ostarmel's book really helps uh, get to some of those big patterns of change. And he has a whole section based on how, that looks at uh, how the experience of labour or work changed through the 19th century. Uh, and it partly goes to this question of how hard it is to really get a solid grasp on uh, what work in history, uh, what ideas of professions or trade skills were really like uh, in history because of the nature of the experience. So he says that not all work is market-oriented, not all labour power is procured via the market, Work may take place at home, within a village community, or in a complex organisation such as a factory, an army, or a municipal authority. The idea of, and this is one of the fascinating things I'm just going to focus on a little bit, is the idea of a regular job appeared only in the 19th century. Much work has been and is irregular the idea of a regular job the idea of a profession uh, that is your vocation your calling that is your career really sort of emerges in the 19th century more consistently and it requires the combination of both uh, a certain kind of occupational identity to actually identify you know i am a x cooper blacksmith and I am my occupational identity. It's something that I consistently do over a whole long time. It's my work for life, as well as a certain well-structured labour process so that there's it's much more clearly defined what particular skills, what particular types of work are. 
He says, if standardized labor processes are combined with a consciousness defined primarily by work, the result is an, quote marks, occupation. Workers who derive their identity from an occupation do not look only for an employer's approval, but also set certain quality standards for their own work. And without that concept, you don't really have the idea of a profession. In many ways, you can really say that the idea of a profession, which is different, I guess, to a craft um, or a craft skill, which might be exercised some of the time, but not all the time. But the idea of a profession really emerges in the 19th century and it's in the 19th century that you start to get more professionally regulated doctors, architects. I'm sure lawyers probably organised their profession many, many centuries before that, but uh, leaving them out. Um, so you get that sort of standardised concept. And the other point that Ostheimer makes is that I guess our image of the transition from the craft world to the industrial world is there's a mass transformation that people move into factories, big industrial, heavy metal, steel type factories. But in in truth, the nature of and the variety of workplaces was much, much bigger than that. Work and the nature of your job, the nature of your profession becomes culturally very, very, very important, uh, much more so than previous times in the 19th century, uh, certainly at least in the sort of European influenced parts of the world. Uh, Osterhamel says, in the West, work, again in quote marks, became both a high value and a favoured category in the description that people gave of themselves, while idleness ceased to be a desirable norm even among the elites. You don't have your sort of aristocratic uh, idlers so much. You have your, your, your busy, busy, busy aristocrats. Queens let themselves be seen in public with their knitting. In economic theory, as in certain currents of anthropology, homo faber became the mandatory model. Homo faber meaning man or human, the maker. And you might remember my uh, episode which sort of um, introduced this theme of the games, uh, which talked about Johannes Husinger's idea of Homo ludens, human the player, versus human the maker. But Homo Faber is very much the model of the 19th century. And again, it drives a reaction. You get people like William Morris, who was a writer, an early English socialist, a designer, and the founder of the arts and crafts movement, who generated the ideal of the pre-modern crafts. And certainly today you can buy like Duna covers with uh, beautiful uh, William Morris prints and it's a, a kind of an aesthetic that both informed uh, the late 19th century labour movement but also uh, late 19th and early 20th century 
elite movements as well, which sort of turned its back on industrial society and generated part of this nostalgia for the world of manual, pre-modern craft work that you see presented in computer games even to this day. Now, the other thing that uh, Osterhamel points out is that workplaces were vastly, vastly more diverse than factories. The image of 19th century England is the image of the steel factories, England being the workshop of the world, the steel and iron, coal. But the truth was that was only ever a thin sliver of the proportion of the workforce and, or maybe not a thin sliver, but a minority of the workforce. And many, many, many people worked in different kinds of workplaces. There were women seamstresses, there were domestic servants, there were cooks, there were, there were farmers, there was agricultural peasant labour, there was dock workers, there were people who worked on ships, huge, huge workforce on ships, which was a very specific, different kind of workplaces. And uh, there were construction sites, and which, of course, was the, the nature of the workplace that I studied in my PhD. Work has always been much, much more diverse than is often presented in his standard myths of the history of, I guess, the working class. And similarly, the nature of that workplace experience varied a lot globally and we'll come back to some of the sort of big stories the grand narratives that people generate I guess out of the transformation from craft to industrial work a little bit later so the idea of guilds unions and class I guess is also related to this whole story as I said before there were medieval guilds not dissimilar to what you see presented in computer games like Skyrim and uh, World of Warcraft in fantasy games. There were merchant guilds and there were also pre-modern worker organisations. One famous example of such pre-modern worker organisation was the Ciompi Revolt in Florence in the 1380s. In Florence, part of its wealth was built on the banking industry but a lot of its wealth was also built on the cloth industry weaving cloth selling cloth cotton wool maybe even silk and in a way this is foreshadowing a little bit next week's episode on the medici of florence but in the 1380s there were a number of powerful guilds in florence like there's the bankers guild and there's also the cloth uh, merchants guild but these guilds prevented the less skilled workers within the cloth industry, who were known as the Chiompi, from forming their own guild. You needed, if I guess if you like, the sense was a guild had to have a clear skill, a clear economic interest, which it would regulate rather than simply represent the interests of impoverished and unskilled workers like cloth workers in the small-scale factories, workshops that were emerging in Florence at this in this era. So the Ciompi revolt involved these relatively unskilled, 
poor labourers demanding the right to form a guild of their own to sort of look after their their interests. And the cloth merchants and the powerful figures of Florence refused that for some time until there was an actual revolt and the Ciompi, the cloth workers, stormed the sort of uh, town hall of Florence and took over the government for a short period of time, implementing things that then alarmed the merchants and led to a range of changes to the political and other arrangements in Florence that would help lay the path for the growth in power of the Medici family, who we will talk about next week. So there's a whole range of, I guess, pre-modern worker organisations, but before, let's say, 1750, uh, 1800, on the whole, guilds largely represent the values and the interests of either merchants or highly skilled craftspeople. And what you really see in the early 19th century is the formation of the same principle of collective organisation, I guess, and the growth of unions and uh, working working class societies for both men and women in various instances in unions or friendly societies in, in early forms of union. But then throughout the 19th century, you still have this same... Uh, I guess, cultural tension, if you like, between craft and industry. So you have unions which represent the interests of skilled trades like carpenters, stonemasons, or plumbers, or engineers. But then you also see the emergence of unions which have a broader base and represent a broader unskilled group of workers where and tend to represent more all the uh, workers in an industry rather than a particular skill set within an industry they represent the weavers the cloth industry rather than the highly skilled cloth workers for example these two models of union organizations sort of work their way through in the 19th and the 20th century and then you get the sort of modern modern union. And funnily enough, this was kind of very much what my PhD was about, and I don't want to divert too much into that, but one of the interesting things is the way in which that story of unions and craft unions and industrial unions, there's a big narrative that is really derived out of Marxism about, you know, the formation of the working class and class consciousness of the proletariat as industrial workers, not not small, small craft identities that deeply affects the historiography and has to some degree obscured the nature of both the work and the real nature of union organization in some of some of the real or the real experience of many of the workers of the past such as in my case the building industry trades which included both skilled workers and unskilled workers like carpenters and plasterers and plumbers and painters and builders laborers and it was largely organised around the individual skills, but it didn't operate in an ex- necessarily in an exclusive way as assumed in the theory of industrial unions. And I guess what we see today now 
is very much, I guess, a post-industrial unions and where you have these vast amalgamations of multiple industries, such as the construction, forestry, engineering and mining union or the Australian Workers Union, which bring together many former both craft and industry unions into one big centralised organisation uh, that uh, functions as a bit of an organisational machine. But again, if you like, uh, this is another case of how the transformations of the 19th century that changed, uh, that generated, I guess, the revolutionary rhetoric about the working class and the grand narrative of Marxism about the formation in response to the Industrial Revolution of a truly revolutionary class, the industrial proletariat, that was not sentimental about its skills and its craft and its particular identities and traditions, but was determined, uh, was solely focused on its, its impoverished nature as the industrial working class, and so could be the vanguard of the revolution. I mean, I'm sort of summarising in an improvised way the the sort of storyline of Marxism. That Marxist class analysis has deeply, deeply, deeply affected the history of work so that it is often quite difficult to get to the reality of the lived experience of people of the past through all the layers of interpretation people have placed upon what people felt about their work or how they were actually organised in their unions or what their, their work was actually like. So it's had a kind of a bit of a detrimental interest. But in a way, it is also part of a, the response to the transformations of the 19th century, the trauma of industrialization and the formation amongst many people in of this sort of uh, nostalgia for the pre-industrial, the pre-modern era as represented in uh, computer games. So Marx really took the idea of uh, occupational identity or class, which, as we've uh, seen, is really, or at least in Ostamel's argument, is seen as something that really only is born in the 19th century born really fundamentally in the 19th century. Clearly people have had a sense of interest and have rebelled against arrangements and all that sort of stuff for centuries and centuries and centuries. Peasant revolts and slave rebellions. But this kind of concept of class um, defined by one's place in the economy and the nature of one's occupation, whether you're a proletarian or an aristocrat of labour or a, or a bourgeoisie, this uh, Marx sort of took that concept and made it into the engine of history. So the history, all, all previous history, is the history of class struggle, as he sort of says. And he sort of demanded that workers saw themselves as proletarians and accused those of more specific identities as having a kind of a false consciousness. They they didn't really realise what their true conditions, their true interests were. And to do that, they had to see the scientific laws of history as revealed in Marx's theories and the nature of true industrial society. So in a way, I guess I'd say that 
uh, Marxism is, is, if you like, partly a response to that trauma of industrialization and the labor movement, socialism, but similarly the arts and crafts movement of William Morris that I referred to before, the the sentimental idealization of medieval society and chivalry that you see in the 19th century and it is very much carried forward into fantasy uh, literature and the world of computer games this was very much born as a response to the big transformations of the 19th century and oddly enough, there's also there a connection between this topic, you know, the history of professions and crafts and uh, unions, guild, and my PhD. And so if I can just be forgiven for reminding myself of what I wrote in my PhD all those many years ago, what it would be, oh, goodness me, it's probably about 30 years ago that I finished my uh, PhD now, it seems. Is that right? 30 years ago? Yes, 30 years ago. So you, you sort of see a version of this story of pre or the craft world of the 19th century, um, the false consciousness of a non-socialist, non-Labour Party sort of Labour movement in the 19th century and the birth of a modern Labour movement committed to socialist or adapted socialist ideas with a true awareness of its of the interests of the working class and the proletariat in distinction to more particular interests such as their interests as carpenters or you know Irish Catholic temperance advocate or whatever particular identity they might actually really espouse. You see a similar kind of story told in the history of the Australian Labour Party and the Australian uh, Labour Movement and Australian history with the Great Strike of 1890, where the Shearers, who represent the sort of unskilled workers, relatively unskilled workers, who are formed into a big early industrial union, the Australian Workers' Union, have a great strike uh, that it becomes generalised across the society and, and in which others participate, and out of which is really formed the early elected representatives of the Labour Party and the growth of the Labour Party. And within like 10 to 20 years, you see the first Labour Party or, you know, left-wing socialist about union or union-based labour movement political parties forming government in Australia. And so... In the historiography of Australian history, 1890 is seen as the great turning point where you move from old unions to new unions, where old unions are the unions like I study, the skilled craft unions, and the new unions are like the Australian Workers' Union or the miners or the steel workers or that sort of thing, where who have a industry-based and uh, approach in a more conflict-oriented and more class-conscious, to use the Marxist language. And I say, while 1890 was a turning point, it was not a time of choice between the tradition of the craft unionists and the innovation of the new unionists. Both groups had contending forces within their ranks by presenting the forces for change and tradition within the building industry, both at work and in unions, 
I've sought to show some connections between the 20th and 19th century labour movement and to argue for a richer understanding of colonial unionism. And then I go on to say, and this is more tied to the theme of the topic of professions and the identity of professions, occupation and work conditions alone cannot serve to explain the development of unionism and more broadly the labour movement. The building workers had diverse work conditions and there were complex consequences for workers' social attitudes arising from their relationships with employers, whether in terms of how they were managed, taught their skills or paid. Building workers were clearly not all labour aristocrats and there is ample evidence that despite their preferences to bargain as individual trades with their employers, they contributed eagerly to advancing the interests of the wider working class. I still felt at that point that I probably needed to use that term, working class. But again, I guess it goes to the very rich history of the ideas of guilds, unions and classes and how they have transformed over time. But also how how those great transformations of the 19th century including in the experience of work and industry and technology and day-to-day labour, generated uh, not just a grind and a drudge, poverty or workplace injuries, it also generated some of the big grand narratives that still structure how we sort of think about history today. So just a few observations maybe to close up on how We've seen more transformations in our 21st century about the idea of a regular job itself. We are clearly no longer living in an industrial society as it was, I guess, understood at, in the mid-19th century or even in the mid-20th century. And Osterhamel actually makes the point that the industrial society as we generally know it, uh, dominated by steelworks and heavy metal sort of industries, really, uh, and in which that was the dominant share of the economy, was actually a remarkably short-lived and geographically confined experience. There were only a few societies like England, maybe America, Germany, where there were for a significant period of time, uh, you know, the uh, the largest share of employment was in those kind of manufacturing industries. And even by the 1950s, m- in many of those societies, other industries, services industries, information-based industries, the office, in-person services, nursing, came to be dominant. And... So perhaps we shouldn't structure all our historical narrative around the idea of industrialization when perhaps we are, are living in a much more mixed up, complicated world. But similarly, perhaps we're also losing the idea of a regular job, professional vocation. I don't know. I mean, reportedly people live, work in, in many different careers, the gig economy, all that sort of thing. And in many ways, people are very much encouraged to think of themselves as not identifying with a craft 
so much as carrying a bundle of transferable skills that they can apply to many different opportunities. And there are, you know, ways of making a living and careers and opportunities in this world that are beyond the ken of a pre-modern craft worker. The whole idea of making a career by producing YouTube videos, for example. But similarly, there's a bit of a revolt against the digital world as well. And, and some of that same William Morris-like sentimental reaction and nostalgia for going back to working with your hands to make real things, to be both in the digital world or online world, but also to be connected and grounded in the real world. So it is perhaps no surprise that stories of artisanship remain comforting, consoling uh, treasure and uh, of the culture. And that um, so in a way, games are part of a long, long tradition in presenting the world of crafts and craftsmanship and artisanship in a pre-modern surviving physical reality that's a little bit free of technology, even if it's still dependent upon it. In presenting that tradition, they're reflecting on culture and imagination as a response to threatening changes in our material working lives. And that is where I think I will end my response to Isaac and Sam's question about how the presentation of professions and guilds, trade skills, work in, and guilds in computer games, especially role-play fantasy games like World of Warcraft, which one does love, how they relate to real history. Um, it's been a bit of a ramble, I think. We've covered I've been to the Congo and to India and to 14th century Florence and uh, Victoria in the 19th century, in fact the world in the 19th century and explored all sorts of topics and byways around the thing. But hopefully that overall sort of theme of how important the mental models of craft industry and the big transformations in the nature of work both in or the transformations of labor in the 19th century and then the ongoing changes from an industrial society to whatever we describe our current society as a post-industrial post-digital world has offered some insight to the good listeners of the Burning Archive. So thanks again to Sam and to Isaac for their question. Next week I'm going to turn, indeed, back to Florence and trace the remarkable, fascinating history of the Medici or Medici family of Florence and the amazing stories that have made them a staple of history, fiction, movies, television series, and indeed computer games. Until next week, um, do please leave us a five-star review on 
Apple iTunes, uh, like, subscribe, share news of the show with your uh, friends and on social media. And uh, remember that what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. Bye now.